Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Long, and uh, I've entitled it Saved by Grace. What does it mean? And so we're going to be talking for the next uh, few weeks about what, uh, what salvation by grace really is. What do we mean when we talk about salvation? What do we mean when we use the term grace? That's a term that we kind of throw around a lot. And just to kind of get our minds thinking together, I put a couple of verses in your outline. Usually I provide you with an outline and a copy of text that we're using. This time I've integrated the two, so that's the reason you've got the pages that you do. But I'd like for us to begin by looking at the uh, verses that I've got there at the top of your notes, and let's just read those together, and we wanna, we'll use that as our launching point to think about, uh, to just sort of do an overview today of, uh, of the whole subject. <clears throat> the Bible reads in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, and this is from the New International Version, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, there's some outlines in the back if you want to grab one. And then a, verse, a couple of verses from 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, and this is from the New American Standard, where Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has been granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. What, uh, what does the word grace mean? When you hear the word grace, what does that mean? Free? The, uh, yeah, you don't pay for it, so certainly uh, the, the term free is included in the idea. What, what is grace? Say, Yeah, unmerited. Free, unmerited what? Yeah, favor. We're talking about free, unmerited favor. And really, when you think about it, it's even more than simply unmerited. It clearly is unmerited. But the Bible teaches that we all are born in sin, that we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. And so actually, when it comes to merit, the Bible teaches that apart from a relationship with God, we really merit only one thing. And what's that? It's separation from God. That's right. Separation from God. So when we're talking about grace, we're, we're talking about something not only that is unmerited, but we're talking about something that's just the opposite of that. In other words, not only do we not merit it, we, what we do merit is just the opposite of what God gives us when he provides grace. Now, when we use the term salvation, what comes to mind? What does salvation mean to you? 
Being, okay, well, that's certainly a cognate of the word, but what, what, does it, what does it mean to be saved? You know, we, we hear that eternal... I'm sorry? Okay, it means uh, sins forgiven. All right, what else? I'm sorry? It means uh, acceptance in Christ, okay? Yeah, okay, it uh, sins forgiven, uh, uh, everlasting life. What else? Anything else come to mind when you think of the term salvation? Anything at all? Because what we want to, what we want to, before we really get started, we wanna, we're talking about salvation by grace. So we're talking about having our sins forgiven, experiencing acceptance from God on the basis of what Christ did on the cross, acceptance in Christ. We're talking about having everlasting life and all of these things, we said. And the Bible says here, the verses that we just read from Ephesians and from 2 Timothy say that it is through God's grace, through His free, unmerited favor toward us that we receive these things. What does that seem to imply? What implications can you draw from that immediately? Any? Yes, nothing that we can do. That's right. Uh, the old Augustus Top Lady hymn, Rock of Ages, one of the verses we sing, Nothing in my hands I bring. And what's the next line? Simply to thy cross I cling. That's right. We're totally dependent upon Christ Jesus himself and what he has done for us uh, at the cross and subsequently because of his, uh, because of his resurrection. Basically, what we're going to be doing over the next, uh, next few weeks, today we're going to do sort of an overview. Um, and I put in your outline what we're going to be looking at, some of the subjects over the next few weeks, if you want to just kind of follow along. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, God's foreknowledge and the subject of predestination, which is linked to election. Now, clearly, in a matter of uh, 40 to 45 minutes, we're not going to be able to talk about everything that there is to say about that subject. But what we're going to discover is that God's salvation really starts in eternity. Sometimes we think of, you know, well, we came to faith on such and such a date in 1969. But that's not really where our salvation started. The Bible clearly declares that God chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, what was the basis on which God chose his people? And we're going to talk about the implications of all of that, and that'll be our subject next week. The following week, we're going to talk about calling. What does it mean to be called? We hear people say, well, I was called to be a plumber. I was called to be a preacher. But the calling we're talking about here, uh, there are two different kinds of callings that we're going to discover in the Bible. One is the general call of the gospel, where you and I as believers are sent out and, and what, is, what is the Great Commission in Matthew 28? What is the gist of the Great Commission? Yeah, we're to go and to proclaim the gospel and in proclaim, as you are going, proclaiming the gospel, we're to make disciples of other people, teaching them to observe all the things that Christ has taught us in His Word. 
to communicate the gospel. That's one calling. There's a universal call in which we tell everybody, come to Christ, come to Christ. If you'll repent of your sins, if you'll express faith in Christ, God will accept you in Christ. And that is true. That is a genuine call. We can say that without reservation. But what we're going to see is that there's another call as well, and that's the effectual call of the gospel. And that is because of our condition as sinners, because of the hardness of our hearts and the deadness of our souls, none of us will respond to that call where it's just announced, come to Christ. It takes a work of the Spirit of God in our lives, bringing us to life, opening our eyes to see who we are, opening our eyes to see the need that we have for a Savior. That's the effectual call where He brings us to Himself. And many of us can remember times growing up in church where we've heard the gospel preached over and over and over, and it's just like, just went over our heads and in one ear and out the other ear and made no difference at all. And then one day, we were maybe sitting in church or in my own case, and I'll talk about this uh, in several weeks, when, when we were, I was sitting in a, a chair in the den in our home and reading a little piece of uh, uh, gospel information that someone had given me. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, the things on that piece of paper began to make sense. Why did it not make sense years before? Well, it's because although I had heard the general call of the gospel, I'd never experienced the effectual call where the Spirit of God was working on it. We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the subject of regeneration. That's the first thing of which we really are aware because the problem is the Bible teaches that we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. And so one of the things that God has to do, in fact, the first thing that God has to do in order to bring us to himself, that is in terms of time and space, is he has to take the deadness out of our lives. For example, if, you, uh, if we went down to the local, one of the local mortuaries today and stood at an open casket next to a dead person there, and we leaned over the casket and said, you know, if you just believed that you could get out of there, you could get up and walk out. How many of us think that this person would be able to get up and walk out? Don't see any hands. What, what's this person's problem? He's dead. He's unable to respond. That's the problem that we have before we come to Christ. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are not only unwilling, we are unable to respond. So the first thing that God does is He regenerates us. What does it mean to regenerate? He brings us to life. He gives us life, and that's the work of the Spirit of God. And when that happens, the next thing we'll talk about is faith and repentance. All of a sudden, we see ourselves for who we are. We see God for who He is, and we cried, oh God, have mercy on me. Save me. And what does God do? He does just that. That's exactly what He does. And the Bible calls that justification. It's a declarative act of God in which God proverbially takes His gavel and slams it down on the judgment bench and says, you are acquitted of your sins. You are not guilty. Does that mean I'm no longer a sinner? No, it doesn't mean that at all. 
But there's a difference between being a guilty sinner, that's what a person is who doesn't know Christ, who's dead in his sins, and being an acquitted sinner. That is that God somehow, and we'll talk about this in detail, God somehow takes my sins and somehow has placed them on the person of Christ and Christ has been executed for my sins, therefore God can declare me not guilty. We'll talk about justification. And then we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about sanctification. And that is, to, to be sanctified means to be set apart. God sets us apart. When does that start? When does that end? Does that mean I'm going to be perfect in this life? We're going to address all of those issues. And then finally, we'll talk about the perseverance of the believer. That is, the Bible says, uh, Paul writes in Philippians, for example, as well as there are other places, says that uh, he, speaking of God, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Not only does God continue to work on us, but if we truly are believers, we will continue to persevere in the faith. So over the next Weeks. Those are some of the issues that we're going to be talking about, and we're going to be talking about some of the little nuances of all of that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun because we're going to be talking about terms that we've heard thrown around a lot. We know how to use them in sentences to impress our friends so that we won't appear ignorant when we speak to them in church. But do we really know what they mean, and do we really know the implications of those things? So that's, the, that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. Now, what I want us to do today is just do sort of an overview of the, this whole thing of salvation, just to kind of set the stage. Um, and we need to start, I believe, with the concept of the concepts of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And that's really a paradox. What's a paradox? Well, some people say if you've got two PhDs sitting next to each other, that's a paradox. But what is, what is a paradox? We use the term a lot, paradox. The word para means alongside. When you, hear, when you see the word dox, what immediately comes to mind? Yeah, church people always think of doxology. What's a doxology? What do we do in the doxology? We sing a song of praise to whom? To God, that's right. The word now uh, in doxology means a, uh, a hymn of praise to God. Uh, originally, the word dox means opinion. And we held an opinion of God. It was a high opinion, and as a result of that high opinion, we sang praises to God. That's how the words changed. But when we talk about a paradox, we're literally talking about opinions that are alongside each other, opinions that somehow seem to be in opposition to one another. So let's begin by looking at the, uh, at the, at the whole the issue of the, that God is totally sovereign. Now again, what we're going to do today is we're going to touch on some of the basics and we're going to talk about all these things more deeply in the weeks to come. I've got a verse here, a passage from Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 14 from the New American Standard. So let's just read this. 
Paul writes, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, when you hear that that sentence, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. He had mercy on Moses, but he hardened Pharaoh. What immediately comes to your mind? What sort of attitude... What sort of feelings are generated in you when you hear that sentence? Sounds like God has something against somebody. somebody. Yeah, okay, good. What else? Yeah, what's He going to do towards me? Yeah, sometimes we read this and we say, well, wait a minute, now this doesn't seem fair because God's having mercy on this person and God's hardening this person. That doesn't seem fair. Well, let's keep reading. And Paul addresses that. Very next verse, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Well, if God had mercy over here and God hardened over here, then why is God finding fault with this person, with Pharaoh, if he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Paul asked the question that we want to ask, but we're Afraid to ask because you don't ask this kind of stuff in church. You wouldn't seem very spiritual if you asked these questions. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And notice Paul's answer. And this is not the answer that any of us want. He says, on the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Hmm. So here he uses the imagery of God as what? Yeah, a potter. That's right. What's a potter? Yeah, he takes clay and how, how do you how do you how do you make pots? Anybody know how to make pots? Oh, you put it on a turntable. Okay, and you got this thing spinning. If you got electricity, that's great. If you don't, you got a little treadle down here that you can move back and forth, and that thing will spin. And then how do you, how do you how do you get the pot shaped? Ah, the pressure of your hands. Well. So the pressure of the potter's hand determines the shape of the pot. Does the clay have anything to say about how the pot turns out? Hmm? No, no, not, not at the recreation center where I went. Uh, and, and I believe that's the point that Paul is making here. Uh, when he says, you know, one God, the potter, and again, we'll go back to this analogy, God can, as the potter, can take one lump of clay, so he takes a lump of clay and he slices it in two and he takes this lump of clay and puts it over here and he fashions something out of it that you can sell for 150 bucks. 
That's the difference between a vase and a vase is about $75. It makes this beautiful vase out of it. Now, from the same, from, from the same lump of clay over here where he got this other one, he can make something else. What's a, what would be a thing that comes to mind when you hear, uh, you know, one for honorable use, one for common? What would be a common thing? An ashtray maybe would be made out of that. Or some of us who can uh, remember years ago, longer than perhaps we'd like to uh, admit, slop jars. Any of you remember slop jars? Sure, you know, when uh, you had the outdoor privy and... Uh, you didn't want to go out there because it was so cold at night. There was a little slop jar where you could take care of business and it could be emptied the next day. So clearly, you know, that would be a picture of common use. Well, he's making the, what's the point that he's making here? That God is the potter can do what? That's right. What does the word sovereign mean? Yeah, overall. God does what he wants to, when he wants to, where he wants to, how he wants to, and he does it exceptionally well. Now, we don't like that because we like to talk about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. But the moment we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about God ruling. And God can rule as he pleases. Now, if we go back to our original premise that grace is unmerited favor, then if God is pleased to show favor at times, that's fine. In fact, clearly we don't deserve it. And if God at other times is pleased to be just, to give people what they do deserve, is God right in doing that? Yes, he's fair. It's justice is fairness when it comes to God. But sometimes what we do is we think, well, we look at this and we say, but that's not fair. And you know what the answer to that is? That's right, it's not fair. Pharaoh got what was fair. He got what was deserving because he's a sinner. The problem is that Moses didn't get what was fair. You know what Moses got? Moses received what? Grace and mercy. And they're two different categories. We're going to talk more about that. But not only do we see that God is totally sovereign throughout his universe, but God, and in terms of salvation as well, we see that, God, that man is totally responsible. And I put a couple of verses here. Notice what it says. It says in uh, John 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. What do those verbs tell you when it says that whoever believes, whoever rejects, what do those say about human responsibility? Yeah, that some, there's some way in which we have an active role in all of, uh, in all of this. We're going to look at, a, I think, what is a really good quotation here in a minute. Incidentally, I don't want you to miss one thing. Notice the last uh, well, the last two phrases. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath. What's the next word? Remains on him. What does the word remain? What does that infer? It was already there. That God's wrath 
was already there. And see, what we're going to discover is that at the cross, that all of the sins of all of God's people were placed on Christ. And then what did God do? God pours out His wrath on Christ for these sins. And therefore, Christ died in our place and those who are His no longer have to fear facing the wrath of God. But for those whose sins were not on Christ, what does Paul say about the wrath? It remains on them. You see, again, we come back to the whole response. It's our responsibility to do what? To believe the gospel. The Bible says believe. Keep on believing. Uh, what does John 3.16 say? That's right. And that verb, believe, is, in a, is a present tense verb. It means believe and keep on believing. There's a responsibility that we have. God is sovereign in terms of salvation, yet humans are responsible as well. We have a responsibility to believe the gospel. There's, there are a couple of other verses, but let's skip down to number three. And I want you to see a verse, couple of verses where we see examples of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility put together. Uh, the first one in Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 20, is from the story of Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Remember him? He's the patron saint of aspirin. What happened to Joseph? His brother sold him into slavery. And then what happened to Joseph? Yeah, before it was all over, he became a chief operations officer. Thirteen years later, he became, through an interesting chain of events, he became the chief operations officer in Egypt. And uh, one of the ways he got there was be, by being able to explain to Pharaoh what uh, a dream Pharaoh had had meant because nobody else had been able to tell Pharaoh that, so he got the promotion, and God put him in that position. And part of that dream had to do with there was really seven really good years coming on the land of Egypt, and in fact all that land around there, as well as seven very terrible years of famine. And the good years came, and, and Joseph had planned, and they, uh, they saved up grain and made all their preparations for the years of famine that were coming. And when the famine finally came, it not only affected the land of Egypt, it also affected the land of Judah, which was just to the north in the, in the land of Canaan which was to the north. And that's where Jacob, uh, and who was Jacob? Joseph's dad. That's where Jacob and the brothers were living. So Jacob says, look, go down there and buy this, buy some grain, because they got lots of grain in Egypt. And so they go down there, they buy grain, they don't recognize Joseph. As far as they're concerned, Joseph is dead. And then finally, to make a long story short, uh, all of them, Joseph reveals himself to the brothers. They have a sort of a little mini family reunion, kind of a scary one. And, uh, and the family of Jacob moves up, or actually moves south, to the land of Goshen so that Joseph can take care of them. And then about 17 years after they moved there, Jacob died. And the brothers got real excited because they thought, oh, the re only reason Joseph has been really nice to us 
is because dad's been around. And so now dad's gone. Gee whiz, we better come up with some kind of story. So they went to Joseph and they said, look, dad told us to be sure and tell you after he died that you really needed to be nice to us. And it says that Joseph wept because he realized what they were doing. And Joseph makes this statement in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He looks at his ten brothers. Benjamin had not had anything to do with it. But he looks at the other ten and he says, And as for you, you meant evil against me. Now what is that? He's, he's doing what? He's holding them responsible for what they did. You meant, he, didn't, he didn't look at it and say, well, you know, I was such a tattletale. I, wasn't, I was a teenager at the time. You know, I was going through a lot of developmental crises. None of that. He said, no, you meant evil. You're responsible for what you did. But notice the next part of the verse, but what? But God did what? Meant it for good. And there you see the whole concept of human responsibility and divine sovereignty linked together. You also see it in the, uh, in the crucifixion of Christ. I put two or three verses down there from Luke 22, 22. Uh, and Jesus is speaking here. says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Decreed by whom? Decreed by God the Father. It was the decree of the Father that the Son would go to the cross. When Jesus was born and placed in a manger, was there any doubt about why He had come to the earth? The second person of the Godhead had taken on human flesh for one reason and one reason only. And what was that? To die. To be able to die. Our salvation, you're exactly right. He says, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. What is that? That's God's sovereignty. That's God's plan. But notice what else Jesus says. But woe to that man who betrays Him. See, somehow in the plan of God, you see God ruling and overruling. Does that mean that God raises up people like Pharaoh? Does that mean that God raises up people like Joseph's ten mean old brothers? Does that mean that God raises up people like Judas and makes them do the dastardly deeds that they do? And clearly the answer is no. All God has to do for us to do such dastardly deeds is one thing. You know what that is? Mm, that's part of it. It's even more basic. Yes. What would you say? Do All God has to do is nothing. Is just keep His hands off and human nature and what's our, what's our basic nature apart from a relationship with Christ? We are sinners we are hostile toward God. The Bible says there are none who seeks after God. There's none good. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. All God has to do is just take his hands off and things begin to happen. You see, in the case of Joseph and in the case of Benjamin, God's hands were on him. In the case of Moses, God's hands were on him. In the case of the 11 disciples, God's hand was on them working in their lives but not in the case of Judas, not in the case of Pharaoh, not in the case of those ten brothers. And they did what came naturally. And as they did what came naturally, guess what they worked out? God's plan 
all along. See, they fit together. Notice another example of that, and then I want us to go on. It's from Acts uh, 2.23. Peter is preaching a sermon here, and he says, uh, this man, and the this man that he's referring to is, is Christ Jesus. This man was handed over to you. He's talking to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. He said, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Did it surprise God the Father when Jesus went to the cross? Not an iota. He said, he was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. That's the sovereignty of God. But look at the next phrase. And you, with the help of wicked men, did what? Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, again, we see the linking of human responsibility with divine sovereignty. There's a quotation on the flip side that I want us to take the time to read together. It's from J.I. Packer's very excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and it really addresses these two issues, and I will insult your intelligence by reading uh, this to you. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught us side by side in the same Bible, sometimes indeed in the same text, and we've just seen that. Both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority. Both, therefore, are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. See, we can so emphasize the sovereignty of God that our responsibility is just left out here in left field. On the other hand, we can do just the opposite of that as well and put all of the emphasis on man's responsibility and, you know, God's just over here wringing his hands off the stage and, oh my, I hope they get this worked out. You don't find that in the Scriptures either. They're not played off against each other. Man is a responsible moral agent. That's, a, that's an important term because what Packard, the term that Packard does not use is this word, free. He doesn't say that man is a free moral agent. He says he's a responsible for a moral agent. Because, see, what does the Bible teach about people before they come to Christ, the condition of all of us before we come to Christ? Are we talked of as free? What does the Bible say about us? It says we are slaves to sin. Oh, we're free to... Put on, the kind of, put on a white shirt with blue and pink stripes on it in the morning. We're free, free to wear Levi's. We're free to wear boat shoes. We're free to come to Bible study or not come to Bible study. But when it comes to the things of the realm of the Spirit, the Bible says we are not free at all, that we are slaves to sin. And what God did at the cross was when He executed Christ, our sin-bearer, the sin problem was dealt with and no longer are we slaves to sin. And we'll talk about that particularly when we get to our section in a few weeks when we talk about justification, when God declares us to be righteous. Let's read, all, let's read a little more about what he said. Man is a responsible moral agent though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality, and man's responsibility is a reality too. Am I free to go to the tallest building in this community and jump off the top? If I can get past the guards 
Am I free to go up there and jump off? Yeah, I am. Am I free from the law of gravity? No, if I jump off, I'm going to be grabbed by another law. Now, if I had a silver dollar and we went out here to the fountain outside this, this great church and I took that silver dollar and we turned off the water so that the water got real still and I was very carefully laid that silver dollar on top of that water, do you think that silver dollar would float? Why not? Well, I mean, if I did it real carefully, don't you think it'd float? No, it won't float. Not at all. What would it do? It would sink to the bottom. That's gravity working on it. Now, if I took that same silver dollar, we fished it out and I dried it all off, took that same silver dollar and somehow attached it to a piece of wood and then put that piece of wood with the silver dollar attached to it back in the water, would that float? And the answer is yes, because the law of gravity would be overcome by a greater law, and that's the law of floating bodies. The law, we were slaves to sin, has been overcome in Christ, and as we trust in Him, we are no longer slaves to sin. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I didn't say we no longer sin, but we are no longer slaves to sin, but instead we are people who can please God, we are people who can obey God, we are people who are called upon to yield, as it were, our members to righteousness to God. That's what Packer is talking about right here. He goes on to say the antinomy, uh, and the, uh, the word antinomy is another one of those, what does the word, uh, what does the prefix anti mean? Against, that's right. And nomi comes from the, uh, from the word namas, which means law, against the law. These laws seem against, these things seem against each other. The antinomy which we face now, that is between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, is only one of a number that the Bible contains. We may be sure that they all will find their reconciliation in the mind and counsel of God. But meanwhile, our wisdom is to maintain with equal emphasis both the apparently conflicting truths in each case, to hold them together in the relation in which the Bible itself sets them, and to recognize that here is a mystery which we cannot expect to solve in this world. The antinomy of God's sovereignty, God's responsibility, and that's going to keep coming up throughout our time together as we discuss this important, important subject. In your notes, I have uh, put some things there about talking about the order of salvation. And so over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be discussing what is, the, what is the order in which certain things occur within the, within the context of our salvation. Because if it's true, and I believe the we'll see that the Bible declares that it is, that our salvation begins in the mind and the purpose of God in eternity. It says that as God's people, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That it all begins with the foreknowledge of God and His, uh, His predestining 
and his electing, his choosing. An election doesn't mean God votes for you and the devil votes against you and you cast the deciding vote. That's not election. Election is that God has chosen us in Christ, only in Christ, before the foundation of the world, based on what merit in us? Zero. Nothing. Based simply on the fact that it pleased Him to do so, that God chose some in which He would show grace and mercy, and others He's going to let receive justice. Is that fair? It's fair for those who receive justice. Is it fair for us, those of us who receive grace and mercy? No, it's not fair, because if we got what was fair, we'd get what everybody else is getting over here too. It ends with glorification, and that's when we're one day with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in between that, and these are all the things that we're going to be talking about, we're going to talk about, in fact, if you look on your second sheet there, You'll notice uh, I've got a little note there for the process of salvation. We're going to talk about how God's call comes to us and uh, how God, by the Spirit, begins to set us apart, to call us to Himself. And then how there are times, even before we come to know Christ, where we see the sanctifying work of the Spirit as He's setting us apart for Himself. And then all of a sudden, when He brings us to faith, when He regenerates us, God ultimately sets us apart right there. We are His and we no longer belong to ourselves. We no longer belong to the other camp. And God starts the lifelong process of conforming us to whose image? The image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about all of that. Well, in our last couple of minutes, I'd just like to reflect perhaps on what all of this can mean to us. Because really all we've done is just take a, basically a rather superficial look at at salvation today. Because we couldn't talk about anything in any sort of detail. We need to remember this, and I put this in your notes, that although the Christian life begins at a particular moment in time, for us it begins when we are regenerated. When God brings us our dead souls to life. We need to remember that it really began in the mind of God even before the foundation of the world. And it will go on through time and into even eternity. And there are a lot of uh, aspects of the Christian life that are very interactive. How do we know when a person is regenerated? Can you, can you look at a person or shine a flashlight in their eyes and say, hmm, you got it. Can you tell by looking at a person that they're regenerated? No, but one of the things that we discover is there's a lot of interaction, and one of the things that happens in a truly regenerate person when a person's come to know Christ is that their life is characterized by faith. It's characterized by repentance that goes on. Repentance means to change our mind, to change our mind about the way we view ourselves to change our mind about the way we view God, to change our mind about the way we view other people, that other people are not just objects to manipulate anymore. God is not a divine slot machine that we can pay homage to on Christmas and Easter, but He is not only our Creator, He is our Redeemer to whom we shall give an account one day. And we need to realize, too, that the whole process of salvation will not be finished in this life Yes, we are being transformed day by day into the image of His Son. 
But that old adage, practice makes perfect, as far as the Christian is concerned, is a lie. Because we'll never, ever be perfect. We should be becoming more and more like Christ, but not until we are in the presence of Jesus will we be exactly like our Savior. And salvation is the gracious gift of God. It was planned by the Father from all eternity. It was purchased for us by the Son in time and in space through His substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross. And then it is applied to us individually and personally through the work of the Spirit of God. Oh, praise God for what He has done in Christ for us. Isaac Watts wrote, Love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift of salvation in His Son, the Lord Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about God's electing grace. And I hope you'll be here for that. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy, your grace and your goodness. There is much about this that remains a mystery to us. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.